We began this series with a message called Letting Go, and I closed that service by telling a story from my childhood about water skiing and letting go of the rope uh, at an important juncture. Uh, But today, the message is on holding on. Not letting go, but holding on. I have another quick story for you. I'm from the great state of Kansas, where there is snow, but there are not hills. And so if you want to go sledding, you have to get creative. And one day when I was in middle school, I had some friends invite me to come and meet with them in a field to go sledding. And when I showed up to go sledding, there was a guy I'd never met before on a tractor. And the back of the tractor was uh, tied a rope. At the end of the rope was a car hood turned upside down. And a bunch of us piled on this car hood, like stomach down and on top of each other. And this guy, I still, to this day, I don't know who this guy was, um, took off across the field, got that tractor up to its max speed, and then cut in and started to make these little tiny circles, which threw that car hood out in much bigger circles really fast. And the centrifugal force was pretty wicked. And we were holding on, and I'm pretty sure I peed my pants. And then one by one, we got picked off, right, and rolled across the field. And then we all piled back on and did it again, over and over. So here's a picture of some kids on a car hood. This is not me. There's no way I'm showing you a picture of me from middle school. Um, this is not me, but there's this kind of holding on that's like holding on for fun. And then there's this kind of holding on, like holding on for dear life. Here's a picture of a water rescue. Uh, this is not a recreational activity. (laughs) Life or death is hanging in the balance here. And with all that these two people have, they are reaching out and straining to make contact to get a grip and hold on so that that person in the water doesn't drown. This latter image is more like the kind of holding on that we're going to talk about this morning in the life of Moses in Exodus chapters 5 through 15. You may want to open up your Bible uh, to Exodus 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to send you home with a free one today. And you can stop at the Welcome Center and pick that up. You'll also see the scriptures on the screen, or you can open up the free YouVersion app on your phone, hit events, and find us there. So this morning on the Bible timeline, we are in Exodus, which is towards the left of our timeline. As Pastor Mark has already mentioned, Exodus is not really about Moses. It's not even about the people of God at large. All of the Old and New Testaments, including Exodus, are really all pointing to Jesus. As Nancy Guthrie so poignantly unpacks for us in her work, and you can find that on Right Now Media. I highly recommend it. If you want that name again, it's Nancy Guthrie. When we last left off, Moses had been living in the land of Midian for about 40 years, raising a family and herding sheep, when God appeared to him in a burning bush and told him to go back to Egypt and to confront the Pharaoh, that's another name for king, and to lead the people of Israel 
out of that land and out of slavery into the promised land that had been promised to Abraham almost 500 years before this. God tells Moses right up front, this is not going to go well. Initially, this is not going to work. Moses is going to have to hold on and hang on to this promise. And after God strikes the Egyptians, and after God does some signs and wonders, then Pharaoh's going to let them go. But Moses is not told how many strikes this is going to take, how many wonders this is going to take, or how long this is going to take. He does know from the get-go that he is in for a ride. So at the age of 80, Moses loads up his family. He heads back into Egypt. He reunites with his older brother, Aaron, who's going to be his colleague in this endeavor. They gather the elders of Israel. They explain all that, that God has said, and the elders are on board. And so it begins. In the scenes that follow, in Exodus chapters 5 through 11, the message comes through loud and clear. Hold on to the deliverer. Hold on to the deliverer. In Exodus 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron make their first approach to Pharaoh. It says this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Well, Pharaoh is outraged that they would even ask. And not only does he deny the request, he says that the Israelite slaves must continue making the same number of bricks every day, but they will no longer be provided the straw they need to make those bricks. Then, when the Israelites cannot keep up with that quota, they're beaten. They are understandably angry, and they take it out on Moses. Now, Moses had been braced for opposition from Pharaoh, from the Egyptians, from them. But Moses wasn't braced for this kind of opposition from his own people, from us. And he quickly begins to lose his grip. Exodus 5.22, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. I suspect that some of us in this room can relate to this. When we have determined to hold on to God and to hold on to his promises and to live that out, we can withstand opposition from them from the others that we basically see as over there. We even often expect opposition from them. But when we get pushback from someone in our own circle, maybe a member of our family, maybe a close friend, a confidant, someone from whom we were not expecting opposition, that is way harder to withstand. Anybody want to give a witness to that? 
But that's still a time to hold on. God responds by reminding Moses of the promise and instructing him to tell all of the Israelites about it. Moses has already explained it to the elders. Now he's explaining it to everyone. And in response, do they rejoice and apologize for ever doubting him? No, they do not. Exodus 6, 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Discouragement and cruel bondage are two of the things that make it hard to grasp on. Anybody want to give a witness to that one? Good thing God was already holding on to them. Now I'm going to tell you the next four and a half chapters in rapid fire. So buckle up. Here we go. Moses and Aaron make the demand of Pharaoh again. Let my people go. Pharaoh says no. God makes Aaron's staff turn into a snake to demonstrate his power. Egyptian magicians make their staffs turn into snakes. Moses and Aaron make the demand again. Pharaoh says no. Then we get the first plague. God turns water into blood. Egyptian magicians turn water into blood. Moses and Aaron make the demand again. Pharaoh says no. We get the second plague. God sends frogs. Egyptian magicians also produce frogs. We get the third plague. God sends gnats. And Egyptian magicians, dot, 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 (laughs) can't replicate gnats. And they can't replicate anything else that follows, which includes the fourth plague of flies, the fifth plague, death of livestock, the sixth plague, boils, the seventh plague, hail, the eighth plague, locusts, and the ninth plague, darkness. Now, through all of this drama and through all of these twists and turns, on this roller coaster, Moses and Aaron are holding on to the deliverer. They're holding on to this promise. And there's something that I want you to see in chapters 5 through 11, the first nine plagues. While all of these plagues just look like random mayhem to us, they just look like a chaotic nightmare, these are actually very specific, very deliberate choices that God is making. The plague of water turning to blood was really about the Nile River that was the Egyptian god Hapi. The plague of frogs was about the Egyptian frog god, Hept. The plague on the livestock was about the cow god, Hathor, and the ram god, Knum. And we could go on and on. One by one, God is demonstrating his power over these false gods and idols that the Egyptians counted on and believed in and drew strength from. And I wonder... How many of the Israelites were also influenced by these gods? Maybe after being hard-pressed for so long, we're tempted 
to reach out to these false gods in desperation, hoping for some kind of relief. We don't really know the details of that at this point in the story, but later on in the Old Testament, we get some evidences that the Israelites have picked up some things from these Egyptian gods. What we do know is that these false gods were associated with this period of slavery and very specifically and very deliberately, God humiliated and leveled them as he delivered the Israelites out of bondage. When God delivered the Israelites out of slavery, he did so very specifically for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of people understanding his glory so that there could be no doubt that he alone was Lord over all these other false gods and idols. All these things that had been part of the chain around the Israelites' neck. In Galatians 4, Paul talks about how Jesus came to deliver us out of slavery. Galatians names slavery to the principles of the world, slavery to the law and death, slavery to false gods. And as Jesus the deliverer comes for you, he does not come for you in only a general way. He does not come to deliver you only generally from sin or only generally from falsehood. Jesus comes to deliver you from the specific sin that seems to have power over you, from the specific lie that keeps you bound, from your unique pains and wounds that seem to have not yet been healed. If we had time this morning, I would tell you some stories about my own life and about how Jesus has shown up and stood up to very specific lies and wounds and sins in my own life and set me free from bondage. Jesus is like the man on this water rescue. He's reaching out to you Reach out and grab hold of him. Hold on to the deliverer. And the way that you hold on to the deliverer is this. First of all, you believe that he can deliver you from the specific thing that seems to have you by the heel. And you pray and you ask him for deliverance, just like the Israelites had been asking and praying. And then you be on the lookout And you be listening for the way that Jesus is going to show up and stand up to that particular temptation, that idol, that addiction, that pain, or that lie. And one of the ways to watch and listen is to go to God's word very regularly Because a common element of deliverance is when the deliverer will guide you to a very particular scriptural passage that speaks right to where you are. I also recommend that you ask someone else to look and listen with you. We have over 70 adults registered for small groups right now. I suggest that you ask someone in your small group to help you watch and help you listen for the ways God is coming for you 
in a particular area you need him to come. Ask them to help you hold on to the deliverer. Hold on to the deliverer. Now the message that comes through Exodus 12 is hold on to the redeemer. Prior to the 10th plague, the plague on the firstborn, God gives instructions that every Israelite household is to take a perfect lamb, slaughter it, and spread the the blood over the doors of the houses where they're going to eat that roasted lamb meat. Exodus 12, verses 12 to 13. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. We call this event the Passover. Notice that the blood will be a sign for you. For the Israelites. God is not confused or forgetful about which houses have the people who believe in him and who've slaughtered a lamb. He doesn't need the do not disturb sign on the door to make sure this goes right. Rather, he is unfolding a multi-sensory drama to drive home to the point, drive home the point to these people that deliverance and rescue is only for those who are under the blood. It's for their sake that they're putting the blood over the door. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In other words, without the shedding of blood, there is no deliverance, no rescue, And these Israelites understood that. They knew either the lambs die or we die. Either the lambs die or we die. It's going to require somebody's blood. Exodus 12, 28 to 30. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. The word redeem means to buy back something that was lost or sold. Redeem, to buy back something lost or sold. God the deliverer was buying back the Israelites out of slavery with the blood of lambs. In John 1.29, John the Baptist looks up, he sees Jesus, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus is our Passover lamb. The author of Hebrews in chapter 9 says, Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. Jesus, the Redeemer, buys us back from slavery to sin and death 
with the payment of his own blood, not the blood of lambs, the payment of his own blood. And we are meant to hold on to him as redeemer. Either we hold on to Jesus's death or we die by being separated from God in this life and in the next life. In Exodus 12, God gives the people instructions that from now on, they have a new calendar. And every day is going to be counted from this event. Everything from now on is going to be oriented around their redemption. They no longer have their own calendar or their own agenda. This is now the centerpiece of their lives. The centerpiece of their existence. One of the ways that you hold on to the Redeemer is not only to hold on to his substitutionary death, coming under his blood instead of our own, but also getting our whole lives oriented around this reality. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And now honor God with your body. If you've been redeemed, you are no longer your own. Jesus bought you. He bought you back. And there's no longer any such thing as your calendar, your agenda, your money, your body. He's the rightful owner of all those things. So this begs the question, What is the next part of my life or the next part of your life that needs to come in alignment with that reality? Everything's to be oriented around that reality. That is what it means to hold on to the Redeemer. Hold on to the Redeemer. And finally, the message coming through Exodus chapters 13 through 15 is to hold on to the way. The plague on the firstborn is the thing that finally makes Pharaoh relent, at least temporarily. So Moses and Aaron lead the Israelites out of Egypt and out of slavery, and they're following God's manifestation in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Exodus 14.8 says, the Israelites were marching out boldly on foot. And that's about the time that Pharaoh had second thoughts and came after them in chariots. I don't think I mentioned that the Israelites are now pinned up against the Red Sea with nowhere to go and nowhere to hide. And just two verses after marching out boldly, in Exodus 14.10, it says they were terrified. And I suspect that some of us in this room can relate to this dynamic. It is hard to hold on when you thought the crisis was over. And it turns out it's not. (laughs) It is hard to hold on when you thought you just finally came out of the woods And apparently you have not. 
in that circumstance, it can be very easy to go from bold to terrified. And it can be very hard to hold on. Does anybody want to give a witness to that one? Exodus 14, verses 13 to 14. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then God miraculously divided the Red Sea, making a way through with a wall of water on either side. And the Israelites simply put one foot in front of the other and walked through. No swimming, no frantic raft building, no drowning, no turning and trying to fight the Egyptians and dying. They just followed the way that God opened up. They held on to the way. And then when the Egyptians started to pursue them, God caused their chariots to get stuck. He caused them to get confused and disoriented. And then he allowed all that water to rush back in. And the Egyptian army was utterly destroyed. For a long time, I felt like the little girl with her finger in the dam, if any of you know that story. Let me tell you that there's about 14 things wrong with what I'm about to say, but I'm just trying to describe how I felt, okay? I felt like the little girl with her finger in the dam. And every time that something happened that meant that people moved on from our church or shifted responsibilities in our church, I felt like I needed to find another finger or another toe to stick in the holes and plug it up and keep it going. And I felt like if I didn't do that, then everything would come crashing down and there would be a horrible flood and it would all be my fault. Again, I know there are so many uh, things about that thinking that are sinful and just wrong, but that is how I felt. And at a crucial time, I was at, district conference and worship service and I was down in the front on my knees at the altar and God gave me a picture in my mind and in this picture I was walking on dry sand and on either side of me were walls of water higher I couldn't even see the top of them and they were gorgeous I mean just beautiful and I was completely at peace And I knew what God was saying. I knew what God was saying. That he had this and I didn't need to have it. And I didn't need to try to plug up holes as if I could hold all that water back (laughs) to begin with, right? And a few minutes later, after I'm having this experience, my colleague, Pastor Rob Simone, stood up in the worship service impromptu and read aloud a scripture Not this one, but a scripture later in the Old Testament where God does some very similar thing and the Israelites pass through the river Jordan and into the promised land. Sometimes holding on to the way means that you stop 
straining and striving and worrying and pretending to be God and you just walk forward in his grace and you trust in the fact that he's got it and you don't need to have it. Hold on to the way. The way is not a thing. The way is not a program. The way is not a system. The way is a person. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, on one side of the Red Sea was certain death by the hand of the Egyptians. On the other side of the sea was life in the promised land. There was only one way through. Only one way over, the way that God provided. And all the Israelites had to do was take it one foot in front of the other. And in the same way for us, on one side is certain death. And by that I mean life apart from God. Apart from God in this world, apart from God in the next. By that I mean hell. On the other side is life with God, with God in this world now and in the next world. I'm talking about heaven. And there's only one way to cross over. And that is Jesus. He is the way. John 5, 24 says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. All you need to do is believe and follow the way across. But let me be clear that when you choose to cross over, you are committing to following Jesus from then on out. There is much more journey ahead. Just like these Israelites had a lot more walking to do. They had a lot of things they had to learn still. There were ways that they were going to have to change to really follow God. This was not just like a narrow escape from death and then we're going back to life as usual. Their whole lives are going to get reoriented around this, remember? In the same way, you don't need to understand everything that's going to happen in the future to cross over. You just need to know that when you choose to cross over, you are committing to keep putting one foot in front of the other and following Jesus for the long haul. The alternative is to stay where you are and face death. Or you can cross over and have life by believing in Jesus. He's the way. Hold on to the way. Let's pause for just a minute and pray. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for being here with us this morning. I trust that you are here. And by your word and your spirit, you are at work. God, I am so grateful that you can make the things clear that I could never make clear. And I trust that you're doing that. 
right now in our midst. Those of you in this room who can hear my voice, if you've never crossed over from death to life, but you're ready this morning to say yes to Jesus, to believe in him for the first time, say yes to the way, if that's what you want to do this morning, would you stand right where you are? If you've never crossed over from death to life, you've never taken the way, but you'd like to do this this morning, would you just stand right where you are? God, today all of us who've crossed over remember that watershed day or that watershed season. We remember it with gratitude and with humility and with joy. Would you enable us to arrange our whole lives around that reality? And God, we pray for any among us this morning who've not yet crossed over and who don't yet feel that this is the time. At just the right time, God, would you bring them to the place where they will confidently say, I believe I'm crossing over. Amen. Amen. As the worship team comes, I want to tell you the rest of the story. When the Israelites crossed over and the Egyptians were destroyed, the Israelites broke out in song, in praise to God including this in Exodus 15, 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. And there was tambourines and there was dancing. So we're going to sing a song now. And we're going to sing a song about holding on. And as we do that, I want you to think about holding on to the deliverer, Jesus, who leads us out of slavery and bondage so specifically. And I want you to think about holding on to the redeemer, Jesus, who bought us back with his very own blood. And I want you to think about holding on to the way, Jesus, the way of crossing over from death and life, the only way to the Father. So let's worship together.